Hey, good evening, friends and family. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And as I've said every week thus far, we are so grateful for you and your willingness to set aside a few minutes on this Sunday night to be with us. Thank you. It means the world. We love you so much. Listen, before we get to the message tonight, we just want to bring forward a brief word of clarity. A few days ago, President Trump said that churches now are being deemed essential businesses and that they should be opened back up. And that if there were any governors out there that, that resisted that, uh, he would override them. And then on Friday, Governor Walls more or less got on board with that idea by saying that uh, we, we can figure out how to open the places of worship back up at 25% of occupancy. But then yesterday, Mayor Carter and Mayor Fry, they put out a statement together saying that that will not be happening here in Minneapolis or St. Paul. If you need to take a moment and grab some Advil from all of that whiplash, please go ahead and do so. And I just want us to be clear on this, that I could not agree anymore with President Trump. Um, I, I also think that churches are so essential. We need groups of people who are out there loving their neighbors, standing with the poor, lifting up the very least of these. We need a group of people who are centering their story on the person and the practices of Jesus, but we don't necessarily need a church building to do so. If we are a people who are committed to the call of Christ, a call that tells us that in order to love the Lord, we need to love the least of these, then it would be reckless, selfish, arrogant, and ignorant to jump back into a pew because we miss church, even if some other people that we may not even know are going to have to pay for our doing so. We won't do that. That's not that's not who we are. That's not what we are about. And so as a community, with our health advisory team that meets every week, we will continue to take our cues from public health experts and epidemiologists as they chart a path that we can collectively all walk towards, one that will finally stop the spread of this virus. And I know that that can be frustrating for some of you, and I get it. I miss the crap out of hanging out with y'all on Sunday nights. Did I just get Southern? I miss being with you guys at church. I miss the church building and the church worship services that happen inside of that. But if the price of admission back into a church building is the increase of risks to the least of these, then count us out. We're not interested. We will get back to church at some point, but we will not do so prematurely. We will continue to look to the experts and the epidemiologists in our health advisory team and figure out what is a safe and responsible and selfless way that we can move back into the church building as a community without further increasing a risk to anybody outside of us. That's all I have for you. If you have questions, feel free to shout me down. Uh, my email is debbie at the table, mpls.com. And now for this week's message. We are in our series right now, Shining Like the Sun, which is a series where we are going into Steve Weens' book, and we are looking at seven mindful practices for rekindling our faith. This is week five, which brings us to practice number five, which is the practice of conversation. Now, if you were to ask Steve, and you said, Steve, man, what is this practice? What does it all entail? I believe Steve would say to you and say to me that, to be present with those I consider other, I practice conversation. Learning to ask and answer questions that continually expand how I see and understand the world. You know, not to go zero to 60 too quick here, but I really love this idea of expansion, especially for Christians, because it's not an idea that has been embedded in our experience of Christianity. For many of us who were raised in Christianity, in the religion of Christianity, especially in Western culture, we were taught that 
what we believe is more important than how we believe that information is at the top of the totem pole and incarnation plays second fiddle that fidelity to christ is about what we put into our heads and not what we do with our hands and the moment that you question that is the moment that you are backsliding and as a result of a culture like that we, many of us got out we grew up in this religious framework that took something very big and made it way too small and as a result of that this world that we came into because of Christ is now the world that we're running out of because of claustrophobia. We were sure that we heard Jesus say to us on that one faithful day that we ought to follow him and thus go down the narrow road and it's so confusing to many of us how we ended up with narrow minds instead. We were called to live free and yet somehow we took on these learning phobias and this fear of people who tried to say that, that it was it was not just about how we arranged our intellectual furniture. Those people who said that we saw God doing something new in this culture, in that context, that's a very scary thing to be said. And that's a very absurd reality of ours. Because especially in the Protestant wing of the Christian religion, especially for the children of the reformers, they should not, we should not be the ones who are afraid of reformation. And yet we are. It's like every time you see somebody saying, I see something new, you hear somebody else saying, I see a heretic over there, a threat, a slippery slope. There are these religiously induced diseases within the Christian culture where it demands conformity, denounces curiosity, and cancels all growth along the way. And in doing so, fidelity belongs to those who not only have the answers, but who refuse to ask the questions. Fidelity is for the fundamentalist, which a fundamentalist is nothing more than a person who considers whether or not a fact is acceptable prior to that fact actually being assessed. They're on one side of the spectrum, but there's this other side of the spectrum where it's the curious who are leaning in with wide eyes and open hands and asking, where is truth coming from next and where will that truth take us if we go? That curiosity, it often manifests in the work of what we would call deconstruction, but what the fundamentalists would tend to call as destruction. And I get why they would, because if you are a preservationist that wants to keep things as they are, do not budge, do not say something that hasn't already been said before, then it does feel like destruction. It does feel like, like a wrecking ball is coming through your faith. But I would argue that it's only by asking questions, only by taking things apart so you can see how they work, only by getting the fuller picture, whether we're talking about a Honda Accord or the way that your brother acts in that one moment, only by looking at all of the pieces inside of this picture can you actually see the picture. In fact, if you were uh, going out house shopping, if you were looking for a brand new house, you wouldn't just pull up to the curb, give it one quick glance over and say, sold, I'll buy it. No, you would go in, you'd ask about the furnace, you'd ask about the, the roof, you would ask why is there that one smell in that one room upstairs. You would ask questions because we ask questions to dignify things, not to destruct things. And so deconstruction is not destruction, it is synthetic. It is putting all of the pieces together so that we can finally see this picture for what it is. We dignify life by deconstructing life, by asking good questions and not just defending old answers. And yet most of us don't want to ask those questions. We want to hold our answers. And in doing so, I'm going to use the quote that I've used thousands of times before, but it's one of my favorites. It, it, it proves to be true again in this specific conversation that W.H. Auden wasn't messing around when he said that we would rather be ruined than changed.
And I understand why, because it is scary. I mean, D.H. Lawrence, he once said that the world fears a new experience more than anything because a new experience displaces so many old experiences. This is why when NASA came out the other day and said, hey guys, uh, quick heads up, aliens are real. We were all still like, but did Carol Baskin kill her husband? Can we just talk about that right now? I mean, we would rather we would rather focus on Tiger King than extraterrestrials. And I understand why, because it's scary. This is why every theophany in the Bible, a theophany is when God breaks into human history. The first words uttered, be it by God or an angel or a burning bush, are do not be scared. Don't be afraid. Why? Because we are. We are so scared. And yet, what if we weren't? What if we weren't so reactive in fear, but rooted in faith that any truth is God's truth and I can claim it as mine? I think it would look like a lot of people who are carrying this posture and taking on this practice of conversation, which is a fascinating word because etymologically, conversation has its roots in the Latin word conversatio, which is also a root word for the word conversion. And so there is this understanding that when I am entering into a conversation, I am putting myself up for conversion. There's this risk involved because who I am as I walk into this conversation might not be the same person that walks out. Conversations in their purest form should be threats to our stagnancies and, and invitations to our growths, not just these performative actions that we take when we are waiting for our turn to talk. In the Buddhist tradition, there's this practice. In fact, if you've dabbled at all in martial arts, I'm sure you're familiar with it, at least on some level. It's, it's called the practice of Shoshin, which is, Sho means beginners, and Shin means uh, heart or mind or spirit. It often is known as the practice of having a beginner's mind. Now, you could describe Shoshin in 10,000 different ways, and 10,000 people will set out to do so, but if I were to take a crack at it, I would describe the beginner's mind as having this open orientation to the world where you are eagerly anticipating new possibilities and not just anxiously defending old conclusions. But here's why the, the beginner's mind is so important. I mean, Zen master Suzuki, he articulates it perfectly when he says that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are only but a few. Do you see the power inside of this invitation to have a beginner's mind? Or as Jesus said it himself, if you want your story to start, you gotta go back to the start. You have to put away the degrees and all of the answers that you think that you have and go back to when you were wide-eyed and small and the world was full of possibilities and you couldn't wait to see it. You have to be like a child again. There's a story in John 9, 1 through 41. I won't read it all, but um, it's one of my favorite stories. Like if you were to um, kick me out of America and make me live on a deserted island, this would be one of the stories I think that I would take with me. I love it that much. The story goes that Jesus is walking down the road and, and in doing so, he encounters this man who is blind, who is crying out for help. And Jesus, because Jesus knows that there is something within him that can do something for this man before him, he stops and this man starts to see. He heals the man. And he does it in the presence of religious authorities, the pastors and the priests, the Pharisees in the land, who I think inevitably, internally at least, they are thinking when they see Jesus do these things, man, that's really cool. Like, that's pretty amazing that that guy was blind. I know Joe, he, he was blind since birth. Why is he all of a sudden seeing? What does this man have that can allow him to do that? And so I think there's the, maybe this internal appreciation where Jesus, we love what you did. 
Uh, we love how you do it. But all we hear from them is, Jesus, we hate when you did it. You could have healed Job on Monday, could have done it on Wednesday, but instead you chose to do it on the Sabbath. You chose to do something right at a time when that something would be wrong. We don't heal people on the Sabbath. We don't, we don't fix people's problems on the Sabbath. There's, there's other time for that, but Jesus, you just healed him. Can you imagine, side note, being so absorbed in your tradition and clenching so tightly your rules that you completely miss the movement of God in your midst? The Pharisees, the priests, the pastors, they go nuts. And they're absolutely sick to their stomach over what this Nazarene just did and how he just so recklessly trampled all over this long-standing, sacrosanct rule that was so steady and consistent in their tradition. And then they ask this question that is, is an interesting question. They, they are thinking about their answers that they are already holding, and they're looking at this man who was just healed in front of them. And they say, how can this man be from God if he breaks the law of Moses and heals a man on the Sabbath? You, do you hear the boundaries that are being crossed? God does this, but God doesn't do that. And so why is that happening when that shouldn't happen here? Shouldn't happen now. There is this inclination towards dismissing the truth because the truth doesn't come dressed in their team's colors. This new reality doesn't dance well with their previously drawn conclusions. And so they set out to determine how can we turn the music off? How can we shut this dance down? They open up this investigation. It's going to be one week limited in scope, but they're going to get some answers. It's kind of like a government committee, right? Like if something goes haywire, if somebody does something stupid, we, in, we start up these investigative committees. That's exactly what's happening here in this moment. And so they bring in Joe who was blind, but now can see, and they sit him down at the table and they start asking him these questions. They're interrogating him, grilling him, looking for answers that already lived within him and Joe wouldn't cough them up. It's almost like they were saying to him, you need to confirm and validate and massage all of our previous held beliefs. And if you don't do so, we'll find somebody else who will. Blind Joe, now seeing Joe, wouldn't do so. And so they say to Joe, you can go, but go get your parents. Bring mom and dad in here. We have, let's try with them. But then mom and dad come through and they don't come through for the Pharisees. They also, like their son, do not provide the answers that they want. And so then they're like, okay, bring, bring Joe back. Let's try again. Let's go round two with this thing. And as you're reading this, you can feel it like this is going to keep going and going until they get what they want. And what they want is a reflection of what they've always had, what they've always held. And so they haul Joe back in and they sit him down at the table and they pour him some crappy coffee and they light him up a cigarette and then they lean over and they say, Joe, answer us this question. Who is Jesus? And then Joe essentially says three words that are my favorite words in all of the Bible. He looks at the good cop and then he looks at the bad cop and he doesn't stand up and start strolling the room and pontificating about the mystery of the Trinity and how Jesus is the incarnated word of God. Instead, he looks back at his interrogators and says, guys, I don't really know. I'm not in entirely sure. I, I know that I couldn't see and now I can. I was in the dark and now I'm in the light, but who is Jesus? Um, I don't know. I don't know is the mantra of the beginner's mind. I don't know is this humble and open posture of receptivity that every spiritually mature person ought to aspire to someday carry within them. 
It's not defensive, it's not scared, it has no learning phobias crippling its life. It is hands open wide saying, I really don't know, but I can't wait to find out. Can you just imagine for a moment that it, when you think about our politics today or our churches today or your family today, can you imagine if we all were more naturally inclined to carry I don't knows into the world? Not defensive, you're wrong, I'm right, and, and not dismissive of your information for the sake of my own sanity, but this open-handed po- We are in this moment where- <laughs> My gosh, you guys, does it not feel like, how can you live in this world and not just constantly be walking around going, I, I don't know, I, I have so many questions and so few answers, I really don't know. More and more, I'm convinced that a healthy spiritual person is more agnostic than an apologist. They are somebody who is more humble and saying, I, I don't see the full picture, but, but please show me what you're seeing. Let's work this thing together. Let's be collaborative and not combative. Let's actually look to figure out what's going on together and not just making sure that I have a victory at the cost of you being the victim, you being the villain. This blind man, blind Joe, he is the icon of the beginner's mind and, and his interrogators are the opposite, which is interesting because do you know what the gospel writers, especially in Luke, but gospel writers, uh, all of them, do you know what they call the religious leaders? They don't just call them priests or pastors or rabbis. They call them experts in the law. The opposite of the beginner's mind of Shoshin is the expert. The opposite of the child is the fully grown adult. And this is why it's dangerous to be in the church for a long time because our familiarity with scripture, with the stories, with the rhythms, with the rituals, it can lead us to developing a false sense of expertise when we were always called to be born again like babies, to be like a child. And what happens when you get on this expert road is that you get so dead set on the conclusions that you've drawn that you do not even see how close-minded you've become, how, how how allergic you are to new possibilities. Well, we can't do it like that because we've never done it like that before. We've never said those things, never done those things. We can't say those things. We can't do those things. We get defensive, locked down, limited, and the Spirit of God is always pulling us into what's next and He's meeting us here in what's now. The Spirit of God is always opening up blind eyes on the side of the road, but we have to decide, can we trust that truth? Joe has this hands-on encounter with God, this liberating experience of God, and yet when the Pharisees ask him, who is Jesus, he leads with, I don't know. All I know is that I received a gift. I once was blind, but now I can see. I was there, but now I'm here. When I ask you, who is Jesus, do you stutter over your words because it's like this sense of like, I need to name head to toe all of the the creeds and, and the different doctrines of incarnation whatever the thing may be or do you say my marriage was a hot mess but somehow we turned to christ and the thing got clean i was lost in the bottle i lost respect for my body i was caught up in that thing i was stuck in the thick of thin things and then christ met me on the side of the road and now i'm standing here in a different place who is jesus i don't know if I have all the answers, I just know that I have received a gift. But what about you? What are you seeing in Jesus? I want to enter into a conversation with you knowing full well that I might not walk out of it as the same person. At the end of the story, do you know what happens to the man who once was blind but now he can see as he goes back and to try to establish some new rhythms of life? 
Jesus goes out and looks for him. The one guy that says, I don't know who Jesus is, is the one guy that Jesus starts chasing after. I think that Jesus goes out looking for people like that because Jesus knows that people like that will look back. I think that Jesus is still inserting himself into the stories of people who do not need to spend their energy on proving how Christian they are to those around them, but can actually follow where the Spirit leads next. If you want Jesus to find you, you have to be willing to be lost. If you want Jesus to be the answer, you have to be brave enough to ask the question. Here's the good news in our text. If you are an I don't knower, if you have more questions than answers, if you are open to being open, to committing yourself to this practice of conversation, then the good news is that Jesus is out there looking for you. Are you brave enough to ask the questions? Are you brave enough to set down your expertise and lean forward with an eager expectation that God is doing something new and I don't want to miss it? I read this quote the other day from Warner Heisenberg, who is one of the first to discover quantum physics. He is one of the first architects to kind of lay the foundation of quantum mechanics as we know it today. And being the kind of scientist that he was, he was somebody who is naturally inclined to ask questions and be converted inside of new conversations. And Werner Heisenberg, when he spoke about this, the fear of asking new questions and discovering new possibilities, he said something very interesting about God. He said that the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is there waiting for you. What if we actually carried ourselves with this open-handed, wide-eyed excitement and eager anticipation for where the Spirit was going to take us next in our story? What if we lived in the world as if it was one giant haunted house where the thrill of life did not lie in what was safe and what was expected. The thrill lied in what was coming around the corner next that we could not see. I think about Paul who writes this beautiful letter to the Corinthian church where in it he says this profound statement. He says, guys, for now, he says, I know you have all these questions and I know you think you have all the answers, but as the person that you look to for a source of wisdom, let me put my cards on the table and let you know right now that for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. For now, I know in part but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What Paul is offering up to the church here and what I would offer up to our church today is that I do believe in objective truth, but I hold loosely my ability to perceive it. And if I can actually do that, if I can hold that lightly, then I am able to hold others gently. When it comes to my theology, then I do not build a stone rigid complex that I am held captive inside of but instead I build my theology like a sandcastle. I sink my toes into the sand with my understanding of what God is like and then I use my heart and my mind and my imagination and my lived experiences to try to fill out this picture and explore what God is like knowing full well that at some point on some day the tide will come in and the castle will be gone. But then the next day, I will build that thing again and again. I will continue to build sandcastles in a world that is filled with never-ending tides. And if I can keep doing that, I'll be able to continue to leave my life open to God and free myself from needing my beliefs to be my God. And in my experience, there is rest in that space.
You are loved, church. We'll see you next Sunday.